welcome to the As I Say podcast. My name is David. And my name is Bjorn. And together we're... Dijorn. <laughs> um, and today we're introducing you Nicole Brickstock. She recently graduated from UPenn with a degree in poli-sci, political science. And now she works for um, a Child USA, which uh, is a think, think tank to fight... Um, any kind of child abuse. Uh, she uh, did a trip in Nepal where she concentrated on uh, human trafficking um, and she worked, did journalistic work and was uh, sponsored by the Pulitzer Center. An all-around very interesting conversation and um, she's very open about what it's like being queer and coming out um, in high school and to until now and um yeah it's an interesting conversation i really recommend it please stay tuned and um yeah david do you have anything to say no no but we have an update we've changed our intro music so i hope you like that one um let us know all right we'll be right back with nicole brickstock everybody. My name's Nicole. I currently live in Columbus, Ohio with my parents and my dog. And I recently graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, where I studied poli-sci and human rights. And now I'm interning at a think tank in Philly that focuses on addressing issues of child abuse and child neglect. So um, my main passion is human rights, and it's really cool working for this organization because they specifically focus on advocating for children's rights, which is something I'm really passionate about. How, I, that's a great introduction. Oh, thanks. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I was wondering how you um, started kind of developing your um, interest in human rights and um, and human trafficking and how did you, how did you get aware of um, the kind of problems that are going on going on in the world and um, was there an experience you made was there anything you witnessed yeah that's a really good question um, so basically my interest in advocating for human rights began when I was in high school. So I had this really amazing English teacher and she was sort of more unconventional in like the assignments she would give us and the topics we would study. Like we read Malcolm X in her class um, and just learned a lot about a lot of topics that weren't really taught um, in other sorts of classes with different teachers. So she was really great. She was also really feminist. Um, and most of our teachers weren't like overtly feminist in the way that she was. So having that really like positive role model who was advocating for women's rights was really um, like influential. But the 
the thing that really clicked for me in high school was that she had assigned us this research project where we like every single person in her class was assigned to research a different genocide and I know this sounds really like sort of silly and naive looking back on it and when I say it but like growing up we had only ever really learned about the holocaust so realizing that like that wasn't the only genocide that's ever happened and that there's been like countless genocides really um it just sort of hit me that wow like there's some serious human rights abuses that have that are happening now and that have happened in history and I felt really like impassioned about doing something about it um and in the world of advocacy genocide is looked at through usually through the lens of human rights so that's sort of what brought me to the human rights lens um and also just growing up as a queer person and facing discrimination especially in high school for being bi as I used to identify made it a lot more personal for me um and LGBT rights are also considered through the lens of like human rights more generally so basically those experiences combined I I knew in high school and going into my gap year after high school that I wanted to go into human rights, but I just didn't really know what that, what that looked like. Uh, how did you experience discrimination against your sexuality that early on? Yeah, well, honestly, like I was pretty lucky in the sense that my family and like pretty much all of my friends in high school were really supportive when I came out to them. Um, the problem was more in like the person I was dating. Basically her, her family found out that we were dating and basically like made us break up and told her that she was never allowed to talk to me again or like essentially they would disown her. So that was like really, really difficult for me to go through and for her obviously to go through, especially like as we were kids. I mean, when I think about it now, it like really hits me like, wow, we were kids when this happened to us. And like, that's like, we're already so, so vulnerable being LGBT kids. But when it, when it was happening, it didn't really feel like it was discrimination. And also it was like discrimination against children um, but looking back now, I'm like, wow, that was doubly horrible. I mean, it's uh, these, uh, I guess it t took probably so much courage for you to grow from that and to kind of, you know, come out and uh, in that kind of atmosphere where, you know, oh, wow, this, these parents discriminate, discriminate me, my, my right to be myself and like that there's this this blockade of like, okay, no, you're different. And so it was, would you say, was that kind of, was that also something like a catalyst for you to um, get into human rights? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's pretty much what actually brought me to the organization that I'm working for now, which is called Child USA. And I had originally applied to work for them because they were, or they've, been wanting to do a research project on conversion therapy which is like predominantly in America at least I'm pretty sure like mostly used with children like queer kids um so that's really why I was so interested in working there because I like I know how hard it is being queer as a kid and having other people tell you that like your identity is wrong and that 
you need to do something about it and, and change yourself to be normal or be okay or like be like I, I I don't know I remember her family referred to it as like a problem that needed to be solved and I feel like when you're a kid you you internalize a lot of those things so now that I'm an adult and really interested in actively working in the human rights field I want to like go back and address a lot of those issues that I faced growing up and make it easier for other LGBT youth to like get get through childhood and become adults and prosper and live really great lives but it can be really hard when you're a kid like it was always really hard for me to see the light at the end of the tunnel and I want to somehow make it easier for other kids to to like see that light when you talk about internalizing something as a kid, it's, uh, it's, you may not realize at the moment, but later on you remember it deeply and it kind of like affects how you go through your daily life. And you're like, wow, my father didn't like that I did this, but he was proud of me doing this. A lot of adults probably still carry those maybe wounds. Would you say those are wounds? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think exactly what you were saying like everything we're told and fed as children really sticks with us like it sticks with us in our minds and in our bodies um and even now like as we're young adults our brains are still developing so anything that we hear or experience still really affects the ways that our brains are working and the way that we function and think so it's really important to to address the discrimination that any kind of minority is feeling um, and experiencing because it does affect their brains and everything that happens throughout the rest of their lives, especially when it happens at a young age and is happening a lot. So yeah, I think the queer community definitely has a lot of those wounds um, and working through it is really the, the only way to go forward. Um, all of my queer friends have a like have experienced some level of mental health issues and i think a lot of that has to do with like living in a society that tells you you know that being straight is yeah right you're different, that you're different and that yeah. being straight is normal and anything other than that is wrong or deviant yeah but don't you think that with our generation it kind of changes like i think it's with the protests that we have right now, a lot of them are predominantly younger or millennials and, and uh, even children who are growing up during these times. They're gonna, I mean, for one, they're going to grow up as germaphobes because they grew up during a pandemic. <laughs> True. Secondly, they're hope, hopefully they're going to be great uh, advocates of human rights mm -hmm. as we experience the protests stemming from, um, from Floyd. Yeah, I think I'm I'm definitely in agreement with what you're saying and very hopeful that people of our generation are a lot more progressive and accepting of people who are different from them. Um, I do think with any kind of progress, there also is inevitably going to be pushback against that, which you can see like in the Trump administration repealing health care for trans individuals like during Pride Month um, and the like violent murders of black trans women that have, have happened throughout history, but also have been happening in the last few weeks while the civil rights like er, movement is happening again. And there's so much like limelight on it right now. So 
while there has been certainly like an insane amount of progress, and today is like marks five years since the day the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, which is incredible. Oh, today? Yeah, it was five years ago today, I believe. Wow, I should do better research. <laughs> I think it was today. Uh, Wait, today, today is June 26th. Friday, June 26th. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I believe. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, so f- that was five years ago. And for me, like, growing up, for some reason, one of the things that always made me feel like less like sort of like a second class citizen like less than fully human was the fact that I couldn't grow up and like marry the person who I wanted to love but that the day that the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage I like started to feel whole and I didn't really like I never knew what it could feel like in a world where I would have like equal rights and it's definitely made my life feel a lot more just like happy something as simple which is like I mean I don't want to dumb down like the accomplishment to call it simple but like something as straightforward as like the right to marry really does make a really big difference for like the people on the ground who never had that so oh yeah for sure I mean any right where you say why do why can straight people have it but why would I be treated any any Mm -hmm. like why would I be treated um like as something different or that I think that's it's not it's something basic that everyone should get and not be categorized as no yes no yes um when you when you went to Pennsylvania to the University of Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. I I remember Philly as being very like friendly of LGBTQ rights and uh did you see a change moving from Ohio to to uh Philadelphia for college? Um, I mean, definitely. But I think that probably had more to do with the fact that just like when I was in high school and growing up in Ohio, I just like didn't really know that many queer people because I I went to the same school since I was in pre-K. So I wasn't really meeting a lot of new people. And there were only like a few other queer people at my school. So I just felt like we all kind of felt like different and outcasts in that way. Um, and there's not really a lot of, like, queer nightlife for high school students, (laughs) no matter where you are, but coming to UPenn was really different in the fact that, like, it's just such a bigger, there's just so many more young people, um, and there's a lot of queer communities and queer clubs on campus, there's, like, the whole neighborhood in Philadelphia, um, and a lot of openly queer and queer-friendly businesses, so, I definitely felt like I was more like welcome and part of a community, but I think that's also just because I was going to college in a city. Um, but it's really funny because whenever I talk to my friends from like from high school, I tell them like, "Oh yeah, at Penn, I I was only I, I'm only friends with other queer people. Like I don't really have any straight friends," and they are just so surprised by that. <laughs> wow, I, I mean, you have me as a yeah straight, but I'm probably. Where I'm definitely <laughs> there's always the men where I'm like, whoa, I wish I had those abs. Or- Bjorn, your abs are incredible. But yeah, I mean, honestly, you're one of like two guys that I'm friends really? with who aren't like openly gay. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. 
Um, I know. I, I didn't. I didn't know that. That's uh, like that's that. That was kind of like the group that you're mostly surrounding yourself with. But I, I think that does have something to do with how you said that in high school you didn't necessarily have this group around you, or if it was very undiscovered. But then when you went to university, uh, it was open and kind of like welcomed you. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I was also um, taking a queer studies class my first semester freshman year where there were just mm. like 50 queer people and like two straight and guys. Like, yes. <laughs> and yeah, in that class, I made like two of my closest friends who I'm still friends with today and also like had my first crush at Penn. So <laughs> yeah, ex exciting stuff for a 19 year old who grew up in, you know, the suburbs in the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine it's, um, and then Pennsylvania kind of, op uh, UPenn, I say Pennsylvania, I, I don't know if, pe how do people or, or students from UPenn, do they say UPenn or they say, hey, uh, I don't know, like, do you want to go to my dorm at Pensa in Pennsylvania or something? Or how do, how do, how do insiders call? Right. No, UPenn? good question. See, I didn't know that till I got to Penn and I, for the first few days, I would call it UPenn, and then I realized that everybody calls it Penn. So, okay. if you're if you are in the Penn community, you just call it Penn. But for people kind of like who don't know that that's what you would call it, you can say UPenn or like the University of Pennsylvania. But we just say Penn, and we know what we're talking about. And now, now okay, you know good. too. You're you're in the you're in the loop. Yeah, I go to Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people would be like, um, is he okay? Uh, yeah, I, okay, good. That's good to know. Um, but so the way we met, we both were in a gap year. And um, like, I quickly discovered how you good, mm -hmm. like your vocabulary. Like you, first you were kind of like, um, you weren't as social. I, I, I probably wasn't as social either, but as we kind of like spent like what well, you were in ecuador it was in ecuador during our gap year um quickly realized how good your vocabulary was and automatically was like okay i need to apply i'm right now in the application of applying to college and i'll probably need some help with this essay nicole is there let's ask her if she can help me that's i <laughs> i uh, want to be as close as I, as I can with with this with this wonderful being and then <laughs> and then but at UPenn um UPenn you, you kind of like um continued that right writing and um uh, were you always very drawn to writing mm -hmm. so in my high school I'd say there's definitely more of an emphasis on like the math and sciences than the languages and the arts which a lot of schools um sort of have that problem i was really into like studying spanish when i was growing up and i was never super talented at art like i took photo and was decent at photo but i wasn't super like left brain i think i think that's the right the left yeah anyways Left brain? I think I think the left is more like creative and the right is more okay like analytic yeah I think so um don't quote me okay I'll look that up <laughs> um so 
I wasn't a great writer in high school or anything. And on my gap year, I, I had a website, Nicole'sYear.com, where I would um, like write blog posts about the countries I was in and what I was doing. But they were they were mostly just for myself, like a digital journal. And then in each country I went to, I would buy a journal and write pretty much like what I what I was experiencing and what I was doing each day. But all the writing I was doing was just like for myself. I, I honestly didn't like one one tip I have for anyone traveling who wants to also journal but feels like it, it can be really hard to journal while you're traveling because you don't want to wait like waste time and not being able to like do everything you want to do while you're traveling so one tip that I got at the beginning of my gap year was to just like type things in your phone at the end of the day like write down everything you did and then when you have time to just copy it into a journal so that's basically how I usually journal, um, which isn't, it's not the best journaling technique, but it's a good way of like making sure you don't forget anything. Um, all that being said, by the time I got to Penn, it had been like a year and a half since I was um, really like writing formal essays and in real classes. Um, so I, I was really nervous about writing because I, I knew going into Penn that writing was going to be a big part of like my education but I felt like I had no confidence in my writing <laughs> it was really self-conscious um, and Penn makes all the undergrads take a writing seminar in order to graduate so like one semester of the ins and outs of academic writing basically and I was really nervous to take that class. I didn't take it the first semester. I just pushed it off. And then the next semester, luckily I, I ended up taking it and it went, it went well. But at that point I had already been doing a bit of academic writing during the first semester. And I was really lucky because my, I was talking to my roommate who encouraged me that I could take my writing to the writing center at Penn and get help from like a peer tutor. So another undergrad who could help like read my essay and give me writing advice and I was like that's a great idea I'm gonna do that so that semester I ended up going to the writing center two times with different essays um <laughs> funnily enough both of those essays happened to be about like queer sexuality <laughs> one of them was even about like yeah one of them was even about literally like lesbian sex so the that was like extra uncomfortable for me to be reading out loud to like an upperclassman in a writing center where I just like didn't feel confident in my writing to begin with but it ended up being okay and they they honestly gave me a lot of confidence which I think is the like foundation of being a, a writer is having confidence that what you're writing is like that you have something valuable to be said and that you're saying it in a way that's readable and understandable for your audience so they helped me with my confidence and then by the time I um was taking the writing seminar I felt a lot better about my writing. Um, my professor seemed to really like it because at the end of the semester, she pulled me aside and told me that she was recommending me to become one of the peer tutors at the writing center that I had been going to <laughs> the previous semester. Um, so that was like such a great feeling. Um, and then after that, me and a group of like maybe 13 or 15 other students took another writing seminar but this was like a more in-depth seminar where we were also learning how to peer tutor. Um, so then after that semester, we were able to start tutoring. So I've been tutoring at Penn for the last like two and a half years. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, when you spoke about confidence and um, 
Uh, first of all, I, w I wish I was there and I would have told you, I would give you all the information. So you can get the <laughs> Uh, that essay when you spoke about lesbian um, sex, that probably, how, how did you feel right before it? Oh, okay. So, sorry. So, basically at the writing center, when a student comes in with writing, we ask the student to read it out loud. So, we each have a copy of it and they're reading it out loud and we're like taking notes, annotating and thinking about it as we go. Um, mm. So, that's why I was reading it out loud. <laughs> um, but so we, we ask students to read it out loud just because when you, it's a different experience when you say something out loud than when you read it on paper. So you're able to catch things that like sound awkward or weird or like grammatical errors that you wouldn't necessarily read just from the paper. But I always, I always say to my students, like, you know, we ask, we ask our students to read this out loud, but if you aren't super comfortable with that, I can read it out loud or we can like switch every paragraph. So but no matter what, you have to read it out loud, no matter um, what. Not no matter what. So if someone comes in with like a 20-page paper, I wouldn't ask them. I wouldn't read it out loud just because there's not going to be enough time to get through the whole thing. But usually if we have enough time and we're and they're feeling comfortable about it, we, we yeah, we try to read it out loud. Hmm. Is, that, is that when you met maybe, I would assume, like meet any girl you were interested in through tutoring? I would assume that's that's a great story. That's a great story. To <laughs> no, say. Yes, it's not really. <laughs> oh no, I I think that would be inappropriate for the workplace. Um, <laughs> yeah, it would to be. start to start, <laughs> especially because a lot of the like most of the people who I tutor are like freshmen, and I'm tutoring them every single week, and so it, it would not be a good idea to. I like to keep, you know, family and work separate. Good. We don't like to mix those. Okay, no, that's a good <laughs> um, I'm just, I was like, okay, that would, that would be, I was just curious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe dating another tutor would be okay. Okay. Um, but that never, that never panned out. I did, I was definitely into another tutor, but things got complicated. So okay. that never worked out. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was, um, so before I moved to the U.S., I went to this program and there was an American, uh, she was from Florida and her name was Ruth. Um, and she would, so I, once a week, it was like maybe a half a year before I'd actually moved to America. Uh, and it was in Dusseldorf in Germany. And she's from Florida, like didn't speak a lot of German, but um, anyway, she, I had terrible English. I had to prepare for this TOEFL exam. That, um, and she was dropped at gorgeous. <laughs> uh, well, I was too young. Uh, but she, she uh, made me, as a joke, she told me um, I should study M the Empire State of Mind, the song. Mm -hmm. um, you know it. I, yeah. I don't want to sing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you should sing it just so the audience knows. They might not recognize it unless you sing it. Um, well, it's Beyonce and it's Jay Z, right? Uh, Alicia Keys, I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But any anyway, that's so she liked it, and that and I was when I was like, okay, in my mind, I was like, next time I see her, I know it by heart. And I. <laughs> and I. Is that how you were gonna win her over? 
I thought, uh, I mean, the age gap was probably what she was like 20 something. I was 15. So, <laughs> but yeah, you're all, you're out here all about these like forbidden love affairs. They sound great. So what happens? Did you learn um, the song? I did learn the song and I did like five hours. And um, then the next time, I think it was every Wednesday, I would, you know, go to her and then I told, and then she told me to use as a joke. She was like, "Did you study the um, the song I told you about word for word?" And I said, "Yes." She's like, "No way." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, I did." And 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 then I performed like right in front of a one like one v one scenario scenario like you when you read out your essay. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I was definitely that was probably one of the most nervous moments I've been <laughs> in, but. Uh, Wait, so I still am a bit confused, like why she thought that would help you do well on the TOEFL exam. Not necessarily TOEFL, but the conversation kind of like getting in the flow of things of... Um, okay. So what I would do is I would, um, I mean, she would, she just said it as a joke, like what we'd normally go through is like sentence structure, vocabulary, grammar, uh, slang, and then the next thing, and then at the end, she's like, okay, if you want, you can do this, and... Uh, she never thought I could play wow. it, but I did. And I, in my mind, probably not really. <laughs> Classic Bjorn out here trying to win women with, with his rapping. That's, that, that, that was definitely uh, one of the scarier moments of my life. But. Oh, and I was just going to say, I wish we could like see a video of that. Like 15-year-old Bjorn trying to win over this sexy Floridian woman with with that song i should ask her i haven't contacted i have her contact on Ooh, Skype. invite her to uh, this call <laughs> <laughs> she's probably like married with kids probably <laughs> okay, <is>. go ahead. <laughs> no yeah she probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah no she probably is so you went to your pen and then um you got i know you got an opportunity opportunity to go back to go go to nepal and um it was journalistic work you did there right it was research you did how did that how did you get that opportunity right okay so basically i had i had traveled to nepal on my gap year back in 2015 and i just completely fell in love with it um it was like the happiest i had ever felt in my life being there i loved everyone I met was who was so friendly like the place was insanely beautiful the Himalayan mountains were just like there's really no words to describe how insanely beautiful they are um I loved learning about the culture and the different religions um so I had a great time in Nepal and leaving was really hard like I remember I think I was heading back to America on like December 12th and it was December 11th and I was just like looking at my plane ticket and I was like, do I like, do I have to go back? Like maybe I should just say, I'm not going to get on the plane. But then I thought about it and I was like, no, I should, I should really go back and, and see my family. <laughs> but you know, if it weren't for them, I would probably have stayed longer. But after mm. that, I had always just like longed to go back to Nepal and was just waiting for kind of like a reason or excuse to go back um nothing panned out and for like the first 
year of Penn, but then halfway through the second year, I was on a listserv for, I think, the South Asia Center at Penn, and they sent out some internship opportunities. Um, one of them was basically working at like a think tank in Kathmandu and doing like socio-political research at this think tank. And the second I saw that, I was just like, absolutely, like I'm doing that because I, I mean, I studied polyscience sociology and I really wanted to go back to Nepal. So I was like, this is the perfect opportunity for me. Um, fast forward a few weeks and I was told that like that internship wasn't an option anymore, but they had a, an organization that works with sex trafficking survivors and I could work with them. And so I was like, that's great. Um, I am really passionate about human rights. And one of the, like one of the areas that I'm really interested in working in is like the anti-sex trafficking movement. So I was really excited about that. And I had learned a little bit about sex trafficking in Nepal on my gap year. So um, I was definitely into the idea of working in that area. And basically the South Asia Center at Penn and the Middle East Center have partnerships with um, this like journalistic grant giving organization in America called the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. So. I, I applied to the internship with the South Asia Center, and I also applied for a fellowship with the Pulitzer Center um, to support me, to basically to fund me doing journalism in Nepal on the sex trafficking issues and the anti-sex trafficking movement. So I was really lucky because I got to do both. So I spent the summer after my sophomore year, which was in 2018, um, living in Kathmandu and researching and writing about basically what civil society is doing to combat sex trafficking. Hmm. So I live in Atlanta. I know it's a problem here. Um, I'm not sure how it's in Ohio, but how does it differ between Nepal and here in America? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say that basically sex trafficking everywhere has similarities, like there's certain vulnerabilities um, that end up funneling people into sex trafficking or sort of like coercing them into sex trafficking. So for example, like, as you said, like it's in Atlanta, it's also pretty prevalent in Ohio too. Um, it's one of the states with actually the, the most sex trafficking in America. And so the similarities I'd say are like, age, sex, and gender. So a lot of the people getting trafficked in both countries are young women or young girls, young women. So like um, girls ages like as young as like 11 to 14 are being trafficked. Um, another vulnerability is if you're living in poverty or don't have like stable income or stable family situation. So a lot of the trafficking occurring in Nepal is like families have no source of income so they end up selling or trafficking off their daughter as a source of income um in america it might be that a child is experiencing homelessness or is like in the foster system and ends up being trafficked and exploited um by a trafficker because they are seen as a, like as a way of take like getting income and the thing about trafficking is like 
it's a different kind of crime because if you think of like weapons trafficking or like illegal gun sales like once you sell a gun once like your profit is over but with trafficking like you can really exploit people constantly and endlessly for the rest of however long you have control over them so um yeah it's definitely a big problem in in both countries and in pretty much like trafficking is happening everywhere all across the world you just don't really it's not talked about that much <laughs> in comparison to other issues so it's a very underlying um i guess crisis that's going on uh do you are there any spikes that uh maybe in nepal happened uh where you can i don't know if uh do you work did you work with an ngo when you were there yeah so in nepal? so i was living at an ngo that works with sex trafficking survivors and i was also like collaborating with other ngos and doing interviews with people who work at other ngos um sorry what was your other question oh have there been spikes yeah has have, i was wondering if that ngo has um because it's been probably been there for a while if they see spikes in human trafficking cases during different times or disasters yeah so definitely in nepal there's pretty clear evidence that natural disasters um coincide with increases in the prevalence of sex trafficking so back in 2015 in april there was a very very large earthquake in nepal and in the aftermath of the earthquake there was a like sex trafficking really skyrocketed and there's a lot of different reasons for that um i mean you have young girls and women whose like family members died um so they're seen as extra vulnerable because no one's really looking out for them also a lot of people in general lost their incomes and their livelihood from from the earthquake in the in the aftermath so they were looking for basically ways to make money and when you have young women and girls who are especially vulnerable it's seen as an easy fast and efficient way to make money unfortunately um and in the u.s like mm. i know big big sporting events like the super bowl or whatever the arnold schwarzenegger event <laughs> is i'm not yeah i think so i forget what it's called Terminator Fest or what is Yeah, that? basically any big sporting event, any congregation of a lot of men is going to see an increase in sex trafficking. I think so. I looked it up. I think it's a, it's a bodybuilding. The Arnold Classic. Yeah, it's a bodybuilding competition. So those sorts of events where people are coming from all across the country and congregating you see big rises in sex trafficking, but there's like really cool ways that organizations push back and help um, support survivors. So for example, in those areas where, um, like the cities where trafficking is really skyrocketing. So like at those certain times, like let's say the Arnold Classic, different NGOs will go around to like the motels in the area and put um, like hot, like the numbers of hotlines that women can call like in bathroom stalls and just like have really creative ways of reaching um, the people who are likely to be victimized by trafficking. Do you, do you ever research any, um, are there any countries who maybe do it well to prevent this kind of issue? Um, that's a good, good question. 
Um, really good question. I honestly would need to do more research to give you a, a really good answer to that. But I can tell you that, for example, a lot of the laws that criminalize sex work are also really harmful to people when it comes to sex trafficking. Because, for example, you might have someone who's being trafficked for sex but is treated by the criminal justice system as a prostitute and is therefore criminalized so even though someone is exploiting you and forcing you to like engage in sexual acts and is even profiting from it Mm -hmm. you're the one who's going to jail right so those sorts of policies really um fixing those policies is a good way to help solve these problems i know that in the nordic countries i think it's sweden they've decriminalized sex work so that's a good way of i think a lot like a lot of people see those sorts of policies as very beneficial to sex workers and yeah any any kind of policy that treats treats trafficked people as victims rather than like the perpetrators of crime is going to be a good policy and and that comes with like there's a lot of different levels to that. So I know in Nepal, the organization that I was volunteering with did a lot of work to train women and yeah, like young young women and older women to be paralegals. So basically they work in police stations. So then if a if someone comes in who's been trafficked and they want to report it, they can talk to someone who's like well trained and well versed in sex trafficking and the traumas that come with sex trafficking. So they don't have to worry about being criminalized and like being punished for what's been done to them. They can rather be treated with like respect and dignity and not re-traumatize when they go to report the crime. Yeah. First of all, the Swedes again, they always seem like, I don't know, perfect. It's scary. Uh, I don't know how they figure it out. I don't know. Maybe it's just... (laughs) So you said, okay, maybe a preventable approach is um, like how we just do policy making. Um, is there is there any maybe president who's ever been pushing for that or uh, for new lawmaking? Is this is this a federal is this a federal lawmaking or is it just uh, something that's done by the Uh, individual states yeah so in america it's usually it's basically like individual states that are enacting their own policies um for the most part Mm -hmm. and i think when it comes to like basically when you when you have any human rights issue you want to think about preventing the issue rather than like dealing with the aftermath of it so like of course talking about not criminalizing survivors is really important But what we also want to get at is just preventing trafficking in the first place. And I think one of the, like one of the ways that we have to think about doing that is by providing like stable sources of income for people. Because at the end of the day, like people are in the sex trafficking industry because they're making money from it. So if people can just have reliable jobs that are fulfilling their needs and like putting food on the table and helping them care for their families, they aren't going to, they're a lot less likely to feel the need to traffic other people. So I think a lot of it comes down to like the economics and preventing unemployment or underemployment. Okay. So you say it's like a financial, the the financial backing should probably have to be there in order to have opportunity to prevent uh, sex trafficking. Okay. Yeah. And also 
in general, like more education and more social support and opportunities for girls and women. Because if you have like stable education and like a loving and supportive family who's, who will all have stable incomes, like you're a lot less likely to be in a situation where trafficking happens to you. When we were in Quito, Ecuador, and we worked with uh, street children and the nonprofit organization at Ubesi, how, how there too they kind of they preached education. I mean, they, the whole concept was to show these families who work on markets who normally would um, need their children to work. These, I mean, kids zero to eighteen. Uh, who would have to work in order to provide for the family, but this program kind of taught them um, that education is a way out of out of this, out of um, poverty in the long run. Is that? Do you see a lot of like that kind of work done in Nepal? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that a lot of the a lot of the NGOs and organizations working with trafficking survivors focus on education broadly in the sense that they want to equip survivors with the tools to like reintegrate into society and be able to support themselves in a way where they won't have to worry about being re-trafficked. Um, so for some of them, yeah, that looks like completing their high school education. Um, for some of them, it, it might look like learning like the ins and outs of sewing and being able to like start your own business so you can make your own money and you don't have to rely on anybody else so yeah i definitely think that education like loosely defined is certainly the best way to prevent and address the issues that survivors of trafficking are facing yeah is there any um like i'd say if you uh go to like a sports event or something what are sign what is something where you uh, say okay you may want to watch out for that or call an authority what is something people can do mm -hmm. so one thing to like definitely always look out for and this is the same because i was doing research on sex trafficking in the hospital setting so like what can medical care providers look for that will indicate sex trafficking um and one of those things is that Basically, patients who are who present at the hospital and are also being trafficked, the person trafficking them will likely stay in the room with them and never want them to be alone. So that's a really good indication that the patient that you have is like in a coercive or trafficking relationship. And I'd say that that's the same in like all industries or at a sporting event. Like if someone feels very uncomfortable speaking for themselves or like being separated from or not allowed to separate from whoever they're with there's there's usually a reason mm. why yeah well so yeah in a hospital i wouldn't even think of that because normally don't they check background information of the i would assume so um if i i don't know if i'm in the hospital and um i don't know maybe something happened to david and i don't they check like background information or something like what what's their relationship and yeah so a lot of times um the person trafficking you is someone who's related to you 
So that's one way that they, that it could like fly under the radar in a hospital setting. It could be like your partner, it could be a parent or like an uncle, a cousin. Um, so it's definitely, it definitely happens where it's someone that isn't super suspicious, like right off the bat to medical care providers. Um, but yeah, we're working and there's like a significant field of research that is working to train medical care providers to realize the signs of sex trafficking and to use hospitals as like a prevention point and rescue point for survivors. Yeah, the, um, the, work, the NGO you work for now, um, right, you know, right out of college, do they uh, do any work in that, in that area? Yeah, so actually this is really exciting because I just found out about it this week, but, and this is now public information. So as, as we know, the Jeffrey Epstein sex trafficking situation is absolutely horrible. And one of the thing, one of the questions after his death was like, where's the justice for survivors? Um, you know, he was in jail, the people who had been victimized by him for years and decades finally felt like something was going to happen to him and then he dies. So the question after that is like, well, what happens now? And I found out at work this week that the attorney general of the U.S. Virgin Islands and Jeffrey Epstein's estate have agreed to something called the Jeffrey Epstein Victim Compensation Fund. So it's a giant fund of money that will be given out to the survivors, like the, to the girls and women who were trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein. Um, they'll, they'll be able to seek compensation if they come forward with their, their claims. And our, so basically a lot of these survivors have their own private attorneys and the estate has its attorneys, and our organization is working as sort of like a the middle person, like the mediator between um, the survivors and their lawyers and the estates and the, the fund itself. So my understanding is that the attorneys who work for Child USA will be helping to, to read the, vic the victims and their, the survivors' claims and hear their stories and then help decide what sort of compensation they will receive. So this is really, really exciting. Um, we had a training about it earlier this week um, that focused on child sex trafficking, child sex abuse, and like the ins and outs of sex trafficking laws in America. So it's really exciting that survivors will be able to like have their stories heard and also get compensation and justice yeah I, I that is that's great I just um started I watched with um I watched the Jeffrey Epstein Netflix uh docu-series mm -hmm. yeah it was unreal it was just insane like the 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 abuse of power such a big theme and um I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. So mm -hmm. it's, that's great that, um, yeah, that that's the out. Yeah. How long did this take for this to happen? I really don't, I don't have the answer to that. I know that the CEO of our organization was, she had been reached out to like earlier this year about being involved in it. Um, but I'm not sure how long this was in the making. So I'm not, I'm not sure I'd have to ask about that. 
yeah great that your that the organization is doing that and um i got lucky with asking that question that i got to hear yeah i know it's really exciting um and on this note so i was um for the last two weeks i was doing this certificate program through Penn Law called the Global Institute for Human Rights, which basically brought together around 100 students and I want to say like 40 or 50 human rights lawyers and advocates from around the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the other students just released today or announced, yeah, announced and released her nonprofit, which is called the We Believe You Project. And she's a survivor of domestic violence. And she wanted to create an organization where other survivors of abuse, domestic violence, um, could come together and anonymously share their stories. So I just wanted to put that out there. It's a, it's a Facebook page and it might also be its own website. I'm not sure. But yeah, it's called the We Believe You Project. And basically survivors can anonymously share their stories and find solidarity in that. Wow. That is, that's so cool. Cause I, I guess anonymously there, I guess. So the point Brian is that many people aren't, uh, or maybe aren't confident or to share it or that they maybe face backlash once they share it. So this organization is there to kind of tell them, Hey, we're here to listen, um, in a safe environment and an accepting environment. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's also just so many reasons why people feel like don't feel safe or comfortable sharing their stories non-anonymously. Um, so this gives people a really good avenue to be able to do that and like not have to worry about the ramifications of coming forward. So like, for example, one of the, one of the people who talked to us at the Global Institute for Human Rights, her name is Allie Call and she's a, a lawyer in the US and she created something called the Purple Campaign which is basically, yeah, I think it's looking at like gender equality and sexual harassment in the workplace. And she was telling us her own story about like why she, because she was like working at a private law firm um, and she quit, she quit her job and started this organization. So she was telling us the story about what, like what prompted that change in her life. And she basically said, and this is, this is public information too. Like if you Google it, you can find it. But she said that okay. when she was an undergrad, I believe she was working on Capitol Hill and the Senator that she was working for had, yeah, I would say like sexually abused her and hurt, sexually harassed her. So she just like felt very violated. Um, and also working in politics is such a, it's a hard place to come forward with accusations of abuse because it's often the, the person accusing someone else of abusing them that really feels like the, the grunt of it. And it really affects their careers because they're, you know, the first instinct of a lot of people is to just not believe them. Right. And you see this happening with like the accusations against Trump and people coming forward against him. Um, and so it's really, it's really hard for survivors to come forward. Luckily for her, she, she was just interning on Capitol Hill and didn't want to stay in politics. So later on she felt comfortable coming forward because she's like, you know, I'm a lawyer. My career isn't, you know, it's not on Capitol Hill and my life and career aren't going to get ruined if I come forward about this. So 
she was lucky in that sense. Um, also, yeah, the senator she was working for is mm. Joe Biden. It was it was definitely like I wasn't surprised when when I found out that that's the senator she was working for because there are so many accusations now against him. But I mean, one thing that she told us that really like struck me, which again shouldn't be that surprising, but she was like, "Yeah, when this happened to me, I started talking to other staff." And it became clear that like everybody, everybody who worked for Joe Biden knew this was happening. Everybody in Capitol Hill knew this was happening, but no one was doing anything about it. And I think that's one of like the most striking things that occurs in a lot of these like sexual harassment, sexual abuse cases, especially mm. by like older, powerful men, is that a lot of people know what's happening. And a lot of those people feel very like unsafe coming forward about it. Or just feel like they can't come forward for whatever reason. Um, and yeah, I think working for the organization I work for is mm -hmm. great because we're trying to like tackle those issues and make make people feel safe in, in coming forward. And that's like what the We Believe You project does too. Like even though people are sharing their stories anonymously, there's so much power in sharing your story and being heard. Online, you know, right now you see these campaigns right now of, of all of the uh, people who are of the, I guess, what do they call it? People who are like Biden, Bernie, Trump, they're all running for president. They're all like depicted in this perfect light. <laughs> and again, yeah, it's just white <laughs> men. Nicole, thank you uh, for sharing all of this. And um, I'm super glad to have you as a friend. And also role model i would say because um because you're someone who who's always i know who has always been um you're very authentic very much yourself and you go for you know what you stand for thank you that's really sweet yeah so i know you're gonna uh go far and i'll um i look forward to seeing you again in person because we i mean we did great a great job at staying in touch yeah we have and good job on us yeah good job i know uh so you know at the end of every episode we talk about um some slang and i would like to teach you slang and you uh i will translate the german slang and then you will give me a version of the slang phrase or word that you want to use mm -hmm. okay I'm down. I'm ready. You're ready. Okay. That that me I I'm probably not yet. Do you do you so, not have it picked out yet? There's so many there's there are so many, but I do have um all right. All right, all yes. Right. Gotcha. All right. I'm ready. All right. I believe my pig is whistling. <laughs> hmm. Is the okay, so is the phrase that whole thing or is it just the pig is whistling part? Yeah, it's so I think my I think my uh pig is uh whistling. Like, okay. So it's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh I I think my pig is whistling. Is this something that you you use in your life? Something you would say? yeah me um no mm -mm. 
I have no I have I haven't used this. All right. So my I will now. You will now. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I'm trying to think like why would a pig whistle? Um and I don't see any reason why a pig would whistle. So you've really you've really thrown me for a loop here. I'm going to give you a hint. So pigs, they're very reactive. Okay, so so I think it's something that you would say if, like, you felt like you were in danger and you needed backup. Okay. I'm imagining, I'm imagining a pig is, like, walking around in the forest and a predator comes, and then it starts whistling for its other pig buddies to come, like, help, help keep the predator away. And that's how I imagine you saying this. Okay. You're like calling, you're calling for help. Okay, keep the predator away. <laughs> yeah, you're whistling to your, your pig friends to help you. If I would say this in public, no one would help me. <laughs> oh. My pig is whistling. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it, what it means is, so this well-known and well-worn German expression so in German it is, ich glaube mein Schwein pfeift. Schwein is the German word for uh, pig. Oh, pig, yeah. Schwein, like swine. Exactly, it's very close. Yeah. Um, and is used to exclaim disbelief, uh-huh. usually at an absurd or extremely unexpected situation. Oh, wow. Okay. So I guess you're close. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, I would be surprised if there's a predator chasing me. Yeah, you're right. You're on the right, right uh, train. So if I told you something really surprising, you could say, I believe my pig is whistling. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me, use that on uh, your, whatever next interaction you have where you say, okay, this could say, oh, I ordered almond milk, but instead I got regular milk (laughs) and... And then I said, I think my pig is whistling. <laughs> but okay, so what do you what do you have uh, for me that I can uh, learn and mm-hmm. use? All right. See, the thing is, Bjorn, I used my. All right. So I was thinking because I knew you wanted to do slang on your podcast, um, and I was like, what kind of yeah. Ohio slang could I teach Bjorn? But nothing nothing was really that great and then i realized that the queer community we have a lot of really interesting fun slang that people not necessarily in the queer community might not be familiar with and oh it's again an writer you really keep in the loop first it's just pen and now i get a queer community slang term exactly yeah so i'm just like giving you so much culture right now um Okay, so I feel like I did. I have I taught you a, a word before? Do you know what a U-Haul lesbian is? Um, I do. Okay, so for our listeners, what what's a U-Haul lesbian? You oh, okay? Oh, you're testing me. Okay, a U-Haul lesbian is someone. So U-Haul is a moving company. <laughs> good. Good. So someone, a lesbian, who is going to move, so his first date, second date, 
and then the next day she's already moving in and you can't get rid mm -hmm. of a U-Haul lesbian. Why? Because she's always with their moving truck in front of your apartment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was like, you definitely added your own twists and story to it, but I like it. You definitely remember. So <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Have you, have you used that in a sentence since I taught it to you? I told my parents about it. <laughs> 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 all right that counts um okay so I, I need to teach you a new word so you're like really in the community um okay yeah Please. the thing yeah. is like a lot of the a lot of the queer slang isn't super pg is is that okay yeah i think yeah that's just like yeah hit me all right it hit won't me. be it won't be like very graphic or anything but it is it is non-pg for our young listeners out there Okay. Okay. Do you know what a pillow princess is? I do not know what a pillow princess is. <laughs> I know what the tooth fairy is. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. So what, what do you think a pillow princess is? A pillow princess. I think just someone really <laughs> who's coming at night and really, like, if you have a cushion, that's kind of... Um, <laughs> So you have a pillow and it's not, you know, those pillows that are not too, too far. <laughs> um, and then you have to like organize because I like, a, I like a um, less soft pillow. And so the princess comes at night and does it perfectly for you. And, you, and then you don't have to deal with, with that anymore. So someone who, I guess. Oh, that's actually a really good idea. That sounds perfect. He makes the pillow perfect for you so you don't have to deal with it. And that's how a princess, that's a pillow princess. Wow. I love that. You could like make that into like the new tooth fairy. It's like the pillow princess who comes, like they make your bed, they like fluff your pillow. I love that idea. You're so creative. So that's not, that's not exactly what our pillow princess is. Um, basically... <laughs> In the queer community, a pillow princess would be someone who, during sexual acts, would likely be, like, lying down on their pillow like a princess and sort of, like, receiving the ah, sexual okay. act, but not really, not so much a giver. So we call those people pillow princesses. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> That's so, yeah. so more of a... Um taker personality than a giver personality yes gotcha mm -hmm. okay yeah that's definitely uh not not what i thought it was <laughs> no but i like your um, idea too okay good <laughs> yeah that's now you know now you can use that in a sentence yeah can i use it also in a random like a random way if uh there's someone who's selfish, and you're like, <laughs> Sam, you're being such a pillow princess today. Does that work? I'm trying to think. I think you could, like, stretch the meaning of the word, right? So if I was, like, if I was, like, always giving, I don't know, giving, like, emotions or being, like, affectionate to my partner, and they, like, weren't, weren't doing that back, you'd be like, God, you're such a pillow princess. Or yeah, if someone's being selfish, you could say that. But it's like out of context. You'd have to be okay. like stretching the meaning of the word. It's usually used in a 
in a sexual okay. context. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, yeah. Yeah. I. <laughs> that's that's I I'll I'll use that for sure now. Good. I love it. It's great. I I also like what I also re recently um, used was the word heebie-jeebies, and I thought it was something like. Like the he like you're stressed or something, but doesn't it also have a sexual connotation? Um, I I can't speak on that. I'm not sure. <laughs> the heebie because the heebie. Let me look it up just to make. Okay, sure. I guess we can look on Urban Dictionary. They have everything. Oh, it is a state of nervous fear or anxiety. Yeah, no, I used it wrong. I said, "Does that guy get GBs?" And then. <laughs> Oh no, that's right. You could say that. No, that's. I think that's fine. Does that guy make you like worried or nervous? Yeah, that's okay. So I was correct. I was correct. Okay. Well, I guess the people around you. I need to kind of get the toxic people out and those who support. They, they'll all keep them. Exactly. And you're one of those. You're one of those, and I want to keep you. I'm gonna keep you too, Bjorn. You're a good one, and I'm very grateful that you're in my life. Honestly, I think we've done like such a good job staying friends even though we haven't seen each other in like what like three years four years something something super long yeah yeah and we still talk and like stay in touch which is wild yeah yeah and uh okay so uh we'll need to definitely reorganize the time and when this is over and then uh yeah get to meet up let's do it Bjorn, thank you so much for having me on your show. This was a lot of fun. Uh, what, uh, how would you, do you have anything you'd like to tell the listeners about, um, yeah, is that, what do you, what do you care about right now? What do I care about right now? Bjorn, all I have to say is Black Lives Matter. And there's a lot of social justice issues right now that people can get involved in. So whatever people feel, feel passionate about, during this pandemic, wild, crazy COVID time, they should, they should feel like this is a calling. The world needs you. So go out there and do something. That's very powerful. What, how can, what are some ways to support Black Lives Matter? Protest, donate. I'm a curious person. Nicole, you need to tell me this. Yeah, no, definitely. Protests. Um, donating to local organizations or national organizations, supporting the movement, educating yourself, reading books, listening to the people who are telling you that they're feeling and being victimized by police brutality and systematic racism and discrimination. So just giving, giving those people a voice and an audience is really important. And feeling like it's okay to not know everything. And it's also okay to change your mind um, when you learn new information. So I feel like a lot of, like in this discussion, we talked a lot about human rights issues like sex trafficking or sexual harassment. And it can be kind of hard when you learn new things to change your mindset or to change your opinions. But realizing and knowing that it's okay to to evolve as you learn new information and that you're not expected to know everything right now but you're on a journey to learning and dedicating yourself to learning and to then 
reformulating your opinions and your actions is what matters. Very well said. So do what you can, donate, protest, be open to different opinions and be okay with being yeah, wrong. Yeah, definitely. All right, Nicole. I will speak to you soon. And uh, thank you for giving me your time. All right. Thanks, Bjorn. Have a good one. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. So, Bjorn, that was Nicole. What did you think? I always think hard of her. I'm very glad she came on to this podcast. Um, and I think it was just a very interesting conversation. She tied me into some, um, what was it called? She said, put me in the loop. So um, now I know, I know U-Haul lesbian. I know the uh, princess term. And um, as well as I can now say, hey, do you go to Penn? And then people from Penn will think I'm from Penn. Uh, even though I'm not. So I can say that now. And um, yeah, I thought it was a great conversation, very, very valuable to kind of understand human trafficking because it's just such an underlying issue of, for example, I didn't know if, you know, it makes sense, but in Nepal, if there's an earthquake, uh, a lot of families get separated from their children. And then those children are at high risk of getting human trafficked and then getting taken advantage of and horrible stuff. And uh, in Atlanta, it's an ongoing topic. So, um, yeah, so we talked about the indicators of how to see human trafficking, how to make sure it doesn't happen in a hospital setting. Um, yeah, so I learned a lot. And I'm going to link an article at the end of this um in the description about 20 ways you can help to fight human trafficking. Um, did that, did that answer your question? What was my question? You asked me what I thought of Nicole Brickstock. Oh yeah. Yeah. That answered my question. Good. Good. So, um, yeah, uh, we were going to play a game. David really wants to, um, teach me how good he's at soccer or knowing about soccer and um so he's gonna i don't know what the name of the game is called but you say soccer names and then i have to think of one and it just goes back and forth until we can't anymore yep. all right why don't we start make sure you speak to in the microphone okay i won't say any of the easy ones i'll save those for you okay thanks that's okay. mean yes it is <laughs> i'll start with leon goretzka uh, full name? No, we're not doing we're the, I'll just say it. Okay, Goretzka. Messi. Ronaldo. No, the, you, that's an easy one. You okay, can't five, say five, five, uh, Ronaldo Augusta. Ronaldo. <laughs> uh, Michael Kwesanke. Müller. Uh, Berardi. Neuer. Um, Kyle Walker. Uh, De Bruyne. James Rodriguez. De Jong. De Ligt. Uh, Suarez Muller Griezmann No, I said Muller already No, you didn't You lost Wait, wait, when did you I said Muller You lost Wait, which Muller? Huh? Which Muller? The one from Bayern Munich, Thomas Muller There's a guy Muller named On Frankfurt But did you mean that guy? 
Yes. Liar. I said I take away all the I, easy okay. ones. Okay, good. Like, all right. Well, Griezmann. You already said okay, whatever. I didn't say um, Griezmann. Okay, I'll say Hulk. Mbappe. Tumas Mignon. Nabri. Krizua. Uh, Erickson. Juan Bernat. Sterling. Harry Kane. Perisic. Uh, Kostic. Modric. Jovic. Uh, Lewandowski. Ilicic. Um, 10 seconds, 10. Uh, no, yeah, five, four, three, two, uh, one. Uh, no, my brain, I, I went uh, there. Mohamed Salah, Sadio Mane, There's... Neymar. Uh, um, I get it, David. I get it. All right. Hummels, so, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, and, um, yeah, if you let, let us know what you think, uh, the feedback, we always appreciate it and, uh, yeah, stay tuned, uh, for the next episode and you can reach us over Instagram. Um, and yeah, you'll find a way to reach us. Hopefully if you want to reach out, but <laughs> all right, that's it. Do you have anything to say? No. All right. Goodbye. Auf Wiedersehen. Goodbye.